Uh, anyways, welcome to GCF. This is the time of our evening uh, where we typically open God's Word and uh, we see what God has to teach us about himself and about us and about life. Um, and once again, this semester, we're returning to our series, our theme, Is It Worth It? And so this week, our theme is, um, well, our, our topic is identity. It's appropriate that Joe shared his testimony today because his testimony is all about identity and that's what we're talking about today. Is Jesus worth your identity? Um, and before we get started, I just want to help us understand what that word means, identity. Um, oftentimes, uh, it has a political kind of charge to it these days. But when we're going to talk about it tonight, what, what, what I mean by identity is this idea of where do you find worth? Where do you find value? Um, that question, who are you? If you were to ask yourself, who am I? And you were to answer that yourself, that, that's kind of what I'm talking about in terms of identity. If you, if you wanted... What do you want people to see you as? What you, do you want people to think about you? That's identity as we're talking about it tonight. Um, so I just actually want to pray real quick again, um, and then we'll get, get rolling. Uh, Lord Father, we are once again um, here opening your word on a Wednesday evening on a, a, a campus, a university campus, Lord, and we are just grateful for the chance that we get to do that. It's, it's a special and unique privilege, and Lord, I pray that as we open your word, as we learn about you, and as we learn about ourselves, Father, that we would be impacted by the biggest truths you have to teach us. Um, I pray that your gospel and your word uh, changes our hearts and changes our minds and changes our lives, Lord. Um, give us clarity and give me clarity. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. All right, so um, The Born Identity is like a super old movie, but I, I can use it as an illustration because there's enough, there's enough like uh, sequels and spinoffs that it like carries into your guys' lifetime. But The Born Identity, um, an appropriately named series for our topic tonight. It's a, it's a movie made in 2000, well, in the 2000s. Um, and I think that um, if you haven't seen it, um, or if you don't know about it, the series is built on this idea, like there's this dude, and the very first opening scene is him like lifted out of, out of the ocean by this fishing boat. And this dude has amnesia, so he knows nothing about himself. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know his history. He doesn't know his likes and dislikes, what he's good at, what he's bad at, who his family is, where he comes from. He knows nothing about himself. Um, and the rest of the movie is kind of built on this idea, specifically the first one, is figuring out who he is. Like, he spends the rest of the first film trying to figure out who he is. Um, and then over the next two films, there's, it's like a trilogy. There's like a ton of them, but really the, the three, there's three good ones, right? And in the, over the course of the three good ones, um, this guy who, whose name is Jason, his name's Jason Bourne, he begins to discover pieces of his past as he's exploring who he was. Um, he, he, he learns about who he was. He learns about what he did for a living, what he did uh, for other people. And as he gets clues to who he is and as he tracks down his identity, he, he actually becomes dissatisfied with the man that he was. He actually becomes dissatisfied with the life that he'd lived up to that point. And so the narrative of these, these films is like one part discovery of who he is and another part trying to change who, to who he wants to be. And so... Um, that's kind of the, the tension built in this film is who am I and who do I want to be? That's the whole uh, idea of the, of the films. And um, really, when, when you and I think about that and we open with that idea of identity, that war of who I am and who I want to be is a reality for all of us. We all have a past and we all have a present of who we are and we all have a future ideal of who we want to be. And so as we consider this idea of identity tonight, that's what I want you guys to consider. I just want you to consider that question, who am I? Who am I and who do I want to be? 
Um, Let's open up once again to Deuteronomy 9. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 3 of what Katie just read for us. And it should be up on the screen for you. Deuteronomy 9, hear, O Israel. So this is, this is God talking through Moses, okay? Moses is talking to Israel. Moses was a prophet. That means he spoke to his people through, like, or God spoke to his people through Moses. And so God spoke to Moses and Moses spoke to his people. So this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. So this is Moses. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, who you know and who you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. And so this is Moses talking to his people. And up until this point, God was kind of giving his people instructions Okay, he was giving his people, uh, like right before this, God laid out this law for them. It's called a law. Okay, then the law was instructions for how the people of Israel were supposed to live morally, how they were supposed to live as a, as a, as a civil society, and how they were supposed to live in, in ceremony before God. And um, more backstory before this, and you, you heard it in, in when Katie read it, and we'll read it in a little bit, but they, they had been taken out of captivity, actually out of slavery to another nation. And God brought them out of this slavery, this captivity, this oppression, and brought them to where they are now. And so they are a people, they are with no land. They're a wandering people with no land, no place to call home. Uh, They have nothing of their own um, in terms of land or a dwelling place. And so God, what he's telling his people here is that it's time. It's time for you to have a home. It's time for you to have a place to live. Um, And and, and as we saw, he told them that they're, that, that they're going to conquer nations greater than themselves, nations bigger than themselves, nations more powerful than themselves. He's telling this small, uh, excuse me, this small, not powerful, uh, not influential people that they're going to take the land of peoples that are greater than them and peoples that have been oppressing them and peoples that have been enslaving. Um, and so this is... Um, this can seem as God has this specific people for himself uh, that he's going to have and be on their side in these, in these wars to come, that it can seem that there's something unique and special about Israel here, right? It can be like, well, this is a, God's, God's like, well, I really, I want them on, on my team. I want Israel on my team, so I'm going to help them get these, these cool nations. Um, and that idea that Israel is special so God chose them is kind of pervasive throughout the, the Old Testament in, in bad ways, and it actually moves into the New Testament in many ways. This idea that Israel is special, so God chose them. And so, um, uh, additionally, uh, another way for them to look at this as to why God would take this small nation and help them conquer these larger nations was not just, oh, there's something special about Israel, so I'm taking them to conquer nations. It could also be, we pleased God in a special way that other people didn't, Right? We pleased God. We made him happy. We did what God told us to do, so he's going he's gonna to supply us what we need, which is land, which is a place to call home. And so God tells his people, actually, moving forward in our text, that quite the opposite is true. Um, it had absolutely nothing to do with Israel that God chose them. It had absolutely nothing to do with the identity of Israel that God chose them to be this people that would conquer the, the larger, more powerful nations. Um, and we see, in fact, actually, 
that they weren't righteous, they weren't special or unique, they were utterly ordinary and rebellious. Moving forward in our text, verses 4 through 7. Do, you not, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out, that is, these people that they're going to conquer, uh, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. So that whole text just explains there's nothing special about Israel. There's nothing special about Israel, nor did they do something unique and special to please God. And you see, we often have that kind of tendency, don't we? Just modern Christianity, this idea that um, we see ourselves as the primary actor in the world and God as this force that either rewards or punishes us based on our actions, whether we're good or bad. We, we have this tendency to boil this idea of God down to karma. I do good, I get good. I do bad, I get bad. And so what we do is we kind of, we, 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 we place our hope in doing good hope, in hopes to get good in return. And this, this, this idea can be true of the, of, the, of the vague spiritualist or of the, the most devout Christian. And in our text here, that, that is exactly what God is saying is untrue. God tells the Israelites that it has nothing to do with them being good or bad, but it has everything to do with the specific purposes of the creator of the universe himself. God is saying it does not matter who you are. It does not matter if you have followed the law that I just gave to you or you don't. It doesn't matter if you grumble and complain and disobey in the wilderness like, like ungrateful people, though I delivered you from slavery. It doesn't matter if you worship idols that you create for yourselves, even though I'm the one who delivered you from slavery. God is saying it does not matter who you are. Your identity does not matter. What matters is my purposes and my justice and judgment. You see, God had a larger purpose here than even the Israelites themselves right? There, there, there's, here's these huge nations. Why is he having them dispossess these nations? Not because he wants to make Israel a, a conquering nation, but he says because he wants to make known to the world, he wants to make known to the world his goodness and, and, and obliterate the wickedness that existed in it. The slavery, the oppression, the, the, the conquering nations that, that, that killed and enslaved people, that hurt people, that oppressed people, God wanted to deal with that in his way and that was to take this tiny, tiny, little obscure nation and destroy these these vast empires. Um, And so this story of Israel gives us insight into how we fit into the plans of God, doesn't it? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter if you come from a rich family or a poor family. It doesn't matter if you grew up obeying your parents or disobeying your parents and rebelling against them. It doesn't matter if you're a good student or a bad student, a good friend or a bad friend. It doesn't matter if you are a moral or an immoral person. God will remain God. God will be God. And the reality is for us, if we could see that truth, 
nothing else matters. I would say what a, what a beautiful picture of the inclusivity of God. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. As, God, as God's word says, from people from all tribes, nations, and tongues will come to worship him. And so I, I just, I bring this story up and I highlight this point at the outset to illustrate the idea that who you are and your identity doesn't shape your eternity, but rather your eternity shapes your identity. Meaning, the Israelites didn't become good and righteous, so God rewarded them. They didn't do something which in turn earned them. They didn't utter the special incantation which earned them any kind of favor before God. God gave them a gift, a gift that actually had nothing to do with them, and he had a purpose in in that. God gave Israel land and a nation and then called them to obey and be his people. Not the other way around. You don't become like a Christian and then become a Christian. You don't follow the rules, become moral, do what the Bible says, and then you're good to go with God. That's moralism. That's not how it works. That's not how, that's not how the, the, the gospel works. That's every other religion. Follow the rules, do the right thing, say the right thing, be the right kind of person, and then God will love you. Open up to uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. In this text, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. Or I live, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, first God picks us out of obscurity, and then we worship him. God picks us out of obscurity like he did the Israelites, and then we worship him. God doesn't pick you because you were dope and a good dude and he wants you on his squad. God picked you because God is God and God is kind and merciful. That text that we just read, the same one that Joe read earlier, the life that I now live, I live because he loved me first and because he gave himself for me. That order is really important. I live because he lived and died for me. And that life I now live, what does it say about it? That life I now live isn't my life at all. It's not mine anymore. It's Christ who lives in and through me. So who am I? Who are you? Who do you want to be? The answer this text gives us is I am in Christ. Now this idea of finding your identity somewhere else than within yourself is completely antithetical to the culture we live in. It's completely opposite to the idea of of, of what our culture would describe as where you are supposed to find your identity. Um, you're supposed to find it in yourself, according to culture, right? That's what all the Disney movies are about. You be true to you. You figure out you. You got to find yourself. So many of the movies, Disney movies are about that. Not just Disney movies, but contemporary art in general is, has that, that, that like undertone. You be you. You find you. You figure out who you are and be true to yourself. And the reality is, is that is quite the opposite of what that verse is telling us. You find you in Christ. See, y'all are living in a very unique, y'all, good night. You guys are living in a very unique time of of, of your lives, right? College is very unique. You get a couple of years of college, and then you move on to, I guess, uh, post-college life. 
But college is very unique in that um, it, it, is a, it is a space where so much of your identity is formed. And maybe not set in stone, but so much more solidified. You as a person are shaped in college. Um, you see, in junior high and high school, it's often, it's where do I fit in? In college, it's where do I want to fit in? Who do I want to be? And that's what you're aiming for. That's what you're aiming through in your studies. That's what you're aiming for in your friend groups. That's what you're aiming for in your leisure. It's who do I want to be? Um, and so this, is, this, this time in college, this is where you're finding purpose, where you're finding, um, where you're finding worth, where you ch- why you choose your career, because you want to find worth in your career and, and meaning, and in, you want to impact the world. Uh, th- it's the idea of um, identity in college. It's this idea of, I, I want to be something, and so that's what I build my studies around. That's what I build all those things we just said around. It's, I want to be known as blank. So I want to be known as a successful, uh, innovative heart surgeon. I want to be known as a really great dad. I want to be known as a really great wife. Um, all of those things, whatever it is that you're, you're striving towards, that you're looking forward to, uh, those are parts of what you're building your identity on. That's what you're building yourself on. And so I would say, uh, why is that bad? Why is that bad? Why is it better to let your identity be found in Christ and not in yourself and just what you want and what you desire and these things that you decide um, at this time of your life that you want to chase? Why is that better? Well, let's look at Romans 5, uh, verses 12 through 14 and verses 18 through 19. It'll be up on the screen as well. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... Excuse me, and, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted, excuse me, where there is no law. And yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Uh, The Bible often does this really cool thing, okay? It does this really cool thing where it parallels itself, okay? Um, We actually just, like, with the whole Deuteronomy passage, that's what we looked at, right? We took Israel, we saw this story that explained how God was working and why God chose them, why God chose them for his purposes, and we compared that to us, right? We, we, we said God chose Israel out of obscurity for no reason other than God's plans of, in and of himself, and we compared that to our salvation for ourselves, right? God chose us for no reason, not, no reason that that we were special or unique, but for God's own purposes. Those parallels are all through the scripture. And, and right here we find a really, really cool one. In this one we see Jesus, or Paul excuse me, comparing Adam with Jesus and he's saying Jesus is the better version of Adam. Right? Adam is, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, Later on, we see uh, in verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners through Adam. So by the one man's obedience through Jesus, the many will be made righteous through Jesus. And so this idea of comparing Jesus to Adam begins with Adam as our representative, right? 
Adam is our representative. Um, the reality, uh, if you don't know the story of Adam and Eve, basically Adam ate this apple when God told him not to because he thought he knew better than God and he wanted to be like God. And so he made his own decisions. He wanted to be his own man. And so Adam ate this apple and God kicked him out of present, his own presence. And so then Adam had to enter into this, this world that um, would be infected by the sin, meaning a world with, with, with murder and thievery, with insider trading and greed and corruption and and. and, and, and brokenness all around him. And so the way that sin entered the world through Adam, as our verse says, is two ways. One, it just bled through history, right? Like you get broken people together. You get two people together that are broken and you're going to have conflict occasionally, right? You get a whole world of people together that are broken and have broken desires and are chasing after their own needs and uh, above everyone else's and you're going to have conflict, right? And so just throughout history, throughout history, the sin of Adam bleeds into us. And the second way that Adam's sin affected us is him as our representative. So think of like politicians, okay? Think of like, we're in the election season, right? And so we vote for people in our district, people in our state, people locally, and people nationally, right? We, we vote for people to represent us and our interests, right? And so those representatives, whether they be state, local, or, or federal, they, they can make good decisions, they can make good decisions that, that help with the, the thriving of people in our, in our culture and society that help people flourish and represent us really well, or they can make really poor decisions that, that cause strife and destruction among their people, right? And can make us, it can, it can represent us poorly before others. And so Adam was basically our representative, the human race's representative before God in the garden. And so when he made a poor decision, we all made a poor decision. When he made a poor decision, it affected everybody. And so what Paul, this whole text right here that we just read, what Paul is saying is that as Adam was our imperfect representative before God, Jesus came and was our perfect representative before God. That's the parallel we're talking about. In Adam, all die, and in Jesus, all have life. Adam's imperfection earned death for his people, while Jesus' death earned life for his people. Um, let's look one more time at a comparison that Paul's made, the same comparison in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Oh, I got a hair on me of this. Uh, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So how does this fit with identity? Well, there is, uh, there is this, I, this, this phrase that appears 97 times in my ESV, and it's called, it says, in Christ. Okay? And various like, forms of that, like through Christ or uh, because of Christ or by Christ or by Jesus, that's like over 180. I couldn't get an exact number, but it's over 180. And so God's word, when it talks about identity, that's the phrase that we're looking for, in Christ. And so as we're talking about identity tonight and looking at these scriptures, there are only two options for your identity. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. All identity that isn't in Christ is in Adam. That means identity in yourself, identity in your spouse, identity in your career, identity in your community. Whatever it is that you're putting worth, value, and personhood on that isn't Jesus, that is identity in Adam. Let me make this point in a couple ways. No one is going to argue that they're perfect, right? No one's going to argue that they never screw up. And so to put your identity 
on someone who isn't perfect means that person or that object or that ideal is going to fail you if it isn't perfect. No one in this culture would argue that, no, that, that they are perfect and everything will eventually fail. So if your identity is in you, if your identity is in, in something that will fail, then your identity is like Adam in something that's, that's fallible, something that could fail, something that's finite and broken. No matter what it is, it can fail. Um, we take a successful, um, a successful business owner, right? Small business owners, economies rise and fall, right? A successful small business can become a very unsuccessful small business at the, at the, as, as an economy takes a downturn. Um, a sports career can be derailed by a blown out knee or a blown out shoulder. Um, fatherhood or motherhood, you can feel like a failure if you have rebellious children. The perfect marriage can be destroyed by, by drifting apart or by infidelity, not even on your own part. These things that you look towards in your life right now, as you're in college, these things that you're, these ideals that you have about what life could look like, what you want to build your life on, who you want to be, they all can fail you. Another way to illustrate that all identities are in Adam is that um, no matter if you are successful in whatever it is you're building your identity on, or if you're a failure, it's not going to fulfill. I said this a little a while ago in a sermon, is it like, uh, history is replete with, with, uh, with, um, with achievers who have accomplished the heights of success and yet have still been found unfulfilled, right? We've done, we've had quotes from like Madonna, we've had quotes from artists, we've had quotes, quotes from um, politicians and business people. You can achieve the heights of success and still be found wanting. Look at the, the conquerors, famous conquerors of history like Napoleon or Genghis Khan. They conquer land, they conquer people, they have wealth, they have everything, and yet they still need more. You see, we can, we can be constantly unsatisfied by our greatest successes. We feel that hunger for something more. And our response to that is the same, I think, whether we succeed or fail. You see, if we succeed and we achieve that thing we really, really want, if we get into med school, if we get that, that, that residency, if we get into that specialty, we just keep going. We, we get to that point and we're like, man, this isn't satisfied. Maybe I just need to get to the next one. And you just you keep stacking, trying to stick, stack success upon success, trying to fulfill yourself. And so you reach that point, you're unfulfilled, and so you keep striving. Or... Like what I, the category I would fall into, you achieve success in something and don't find fulfillment, so you look somewhere else. You're like, career's not going to fulfill me, so what about family? Well, family doesn't fulfill me. Let me go back to career. Let me change my career, right? And even if you fail, that, we have those same responses. If you fail at something, you can even be more motivated to succeed at it. Or if you fail at something, you can change your focus. The idea that I'm... It, you're not going to be fulfilled whether you achieve or fail. Whatever you're building your identity, your personhood, your worth, your value on, don't take it from my word for it. Take history's word for it. And you know what's really cool, though? What's really cool is that, that, that our brokenness, our inability to be fulfilled, our failures, 
it's actually paradoxically beautiful because it's in the brokenness. It's in the brokenness of our manufactured identities that point each of us to the source of greatest joy and purpose in Christ. You see, we, we either fail to a point where, as Joe described in his story, couldn't find satisfaction, couldn't find love. Sports didn't do it. Girls didn't do it. So I look somewhere else. Look to Christ. Or in our successes, we succeed and succeed and succeed only to be left lacking. And the only place left to turn is must be something else. After all, what is prosperity for 85 years on this earth when I can have an eternity of glory? So either in our failures or successes, our brokenness can point us to the beauty of the cross. It is often our failed attempts to reach joy in our own identities that shove us headlong into an identity that actually lasts, that actually satisfies. An identity where there is hope an identity where there is satisfaction, an identity where there is joy, an identity in Christ. Um, and as I said, there's 97 in Christ's. What I've done is taken, uh, obviously not all 97 of them because that would, that would, that would take, take a while, but um, I took a handful of them and I boiled them down to, to 10 big ideas. What does it mean to be in Christ? right? What does it mean for you spiritually as a, as a soul to be in Christ? What does it do for you to have your identity on Christ and not in Adam? Number one, there's 10 of them. You were chosen and set apart from grace, set apart for grace, even before creation. First Timothy 1, 9 and Ephesians 1, 4. You see, much like Israel was chosen by God before they even did anything, God did that for his people, the church as well. And he's given you grace before time even began. So in Christ, you were chosen. Number two, you are loved by God with a unique and perfect love. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says that God's love for you doesn't depend on anything in this world. It doesn't depend on your successes or failures. It doesn't depend on anything you do, but God himself. So in Christ, you are loved by God. Number three, you are forgiven. You are forgiven for everything by the blood of Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 7. Jesus' death paid the penalty that Adam earned and has forgiven you, has forgiven your failure through his death. In Christ, you are forgiven. Number four, you are justified in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, you are made righteous. And this, this idea of justified isn't just like I was declared innocent of the charges against me. Justified is like, not only are the murder charges against me like false, but actually I'm this really dope altruistic guy that like, that stopped murders, <laughs> right? There's, it's not just that I'm innocent of murder, but I helped stop murder. <laughs> That's kind of a poor example, but... Um, <laughs> The point is, is justification goes beyond innocence. It goes to righteousness. It goes from evil to righteousness, not neutrality in between. So in Christ, you are justified. Number five, you are adopted into the family of God. God has brought you as a Christian into his family. You share in in the inheritance that Jesus earned. You see, Jesus lived perfectly. He lived the perfect life. And so he, he earned salvation in eternity. And so being adopted into the family of God means God's given you that inheritance. God's given you what Jesus earned. In Christ, you are adopted. Number six, you are a new creation. That's Ephesians 2, 6. God gives us new life. Meaning that the, the, the new life that Jason Bourne was looking for 
after he discovered who he was, God gives that to you in Christ in an instant. You become a new person with new affections, new desires, new longings for glory. In Christ, you are a new creation. God has made, uh, number, number seven, you are recipients of the promises of God. This is actually what the, uh, the last part of, um, of our Deuteronomy text was about. Do you remember that? Remember where he said he, 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 he's delivering them to this land to fulfill the promises he made to Abraham and Jacob and Isaac? God, God made promises to a people to fulfill these uh, to fulfill the, the, um, this covenant that he made with them. He told them that he would care for them, that, he would be their, that they would be their people and he would be their God. You are brought into those promises in Christ. Number eight, you are being made perfect by God. The word we use for this is sanctification. It's Philippians 4.19. God sent his spirit to guide us. He sent his spirit to help us where we are still rebels. He helps us conquer those sin tendencies we still have. He helps us, um, he helps our old selves until that day when we were made perfect before God. Um, in Christ, you are sanctified. In Christ, you are being made perfect. Number nine, you were given eternity. Um, God sent his son to die where Adam should have. God sent his son to die where you should have. God sent his son to die where I should have. Giving us his gospel and reconciling us back to God Jesus earns for us eternity. In Christ, you have eternity. Finally, number 10, you are Christ's and Christ is yours. This is from actually, I got it from Song of Solomon. Um, This doesn't actually say in Christ, um, but it is is a a beautiful picture of um, the the word is, I am my lover, or excuse me, I am my lover's and my lover is mine. Song of Solomon is, is this, this beautiful picture of marriage and one of the best pictures God uses of the church is marriage. Uh, Christ and his church. And so um, you are Christ and Christ is yours. This is the big idea. As the Galatians 2.20 said, you are no longer yours. You are no longer you alone. You no longer live for yourself. You no longer work for yourself. You no longer live for your own desires and needs. You have something infinitely more beautiful to work for than your, than your broken self. In Christ, you are his. And then he is yours. So to close, I just want to ask you the question one more time. Uh, who are you? Where is your identity? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Are you constantly reevaluating yourself, where you're at, looking for something different? Or are you satisfied that God has forgiven and justified and adopted you? Are you like Jason Bourne and disgusted by the person you've been so you long for something better, long for something more, more good? Or do you look at your past, you look at your sin, you look at your brokenness and your evil, And what you see is the blood of Jesus covering it. The blood of Jesus earning for you God's grace and mercy. Are you looking at your future? Are you looking at your future and your trajectory and and kind of disappointed or saddened or meh with what you see? Or do you look forward and see an eternity with Christ? An eternity earned by Christ? An eternity of being Christ's? So finally, are you in Adam or are you in Christ?
the only way we can move from Adam to Jesus is through faith. It's faith in Jesus that brings us to Jesus. The only way that you and I can achieve an identity that lasts, can achieve an identity that is fulfilling, can achieve the, 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 the perfect ideals of those, those ideals we're looking for, love, perfect love is found in Christ. Joy, perfect joy is found in Christ. Comfort, perfect comfort is found in Christ. The only way that we can achieve that identity is by seeing Jesus for who he is as Savior and King. Let's pray. Lord God, we, <clears throat> we just, we're, we're grateful again for the beauty of, of your word, the fact that uh, in seeing and in reading the stories and in the letters and in the poetry, the, the way that you've connected your gospel to all of it and the way that through all of it we can see the beauty of Christ and then see ourselves as in need of Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we consider the idea of identity, as we consider our need for, for fulfillment and satisfaction and, and value, Lord, I pray that we would consider deep thoughts about where value comes from, where ultimate value comes from. Lord, I pray that as we, uh, as these students go back to campus, back to their lives, back to class, back to work, that uh, again, deep thoughts would be had about why they're working, about why they are studying, who they are studying for and who they're working for. Lord, I pray that you help these students build their identities on something that lasts for eternity and not just their lifetimes. Lord, we need your help to see that. Lord, give us, give us faith where we are faithless. Help us in our unbelief. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.